So I'm Mike, I'm one of the pastors here, and we've been going through the book of Corinthians, and if you're new with us this morning, we've gone through in the entire book up to chapter 14, which Daniel just read out of this morning. And also, if you're new with us, you've got a connection card in your program, you can just fill that out anytime during the rest of the service and put it in the offering bag as it goes by. So uh, we've had some awesome topics through 1 Corinthians. We've, we've talked about marriage and sex and singleness and... We've talked about uh, evangelism and discipleship and church and uh, what we call body life and all these different topics. Today we're talking about words. And people are like, what? Like, what is, what is that? Now, you're going to find out. We're going we're gonna to go through it this morning. But the whole point of the series is for us to begin to rethink things according to the scriptures. So much of our mentality, so much of the life of our minds is molded by the world and the scriptures are all about the life of the mind and teaching us and helping us to think biblically and how we were originally supposed to think and sin messed all that up and God when he calls he's trying to get us back to that so that's why we've gone through all these topics so today we're talking about words like I said and I'll explain that as we go in so uh, growing up my my sister and I, I have a twin sister, and my sister and I, we got this really cool game growing up called Phase 10. Anyone ever play that game? It's a card game. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, some people know it. Uh, so we played this game, Phase 10. We got it really young, and we always played it. I mean, so it was one of our go-to games. It was one of our favorite games all day growing up, and uh, we, would, we would always invite, when friends would come over, we'd say, hey, let's play this, and we'd play this, this card game, and... Uh, so we played it for like 15 years. I mean, just, just, yeah, all the time. Our cards are all mangled and, and all that. Uh, so when I got married in my 20s, um, so I'm in my 20s, got married, uh, went, you know, was, went off to seminary, because God called us into ministry, went, went off to seminary, and somewhere around 23 or 24, was it 23, 20, yeah, somewhere around there, 23, 24, and we meet friends at seminary, and we invite them over, and I'm like, hey, and let's play phase 10. So, yeah, really cool, right? In my 20s, I'm like, hey, let's play this awesome card game. So we play phase 10, and we, we bring it out. And, and somebody, I can't remember who, but maybe one or two of us don't know how to play it. So I'm explaining the game. And I'm like, this is how it works. And someone's like, that's not how you play it. And I'm like, what do you mean? I've been playing this game for 15 years. I'm really awesome at it. Like, it's a really good game. This is, like, one of my favorite games. And... And she's like, no, that's not how you play the game. Well, what do you do when you, don't, when you want to prove to somebody that you know how to play the game? Well, you read the instructions, right? You go to the instructions. So we bust out the instructions, we read it, and I realized in that moment that I had never read the instructions to the game in my life. So for 15 years, my sister and I had been playing this game the wrong way. We thought we knew the purpose of it. We thought we knew how it was designed. And we're playing this game, which it was still fun. But when I found out the real way to play it, it was way better. It was way more fun. It was, because well, it was designed to work that way. Unfortunately for us and for you in your Christian walk, a lot of you guys are playing phase 10 the wrong way. That's the picture of your walk with Jesus is you thought you knew what this was about 
and you thought you knew the design and purpose for this, and you just totally got it wrong. And maybe for 15 years, you've been thinking about it the wrong way. You've been living the wrong way. Some of you guys, when you first entered the faith, you thought it was all about religion. And so the, the purpose and design you thought was to follow the rules. That's not the Christian faith. It's not about rules. It's not about principles. It's not about a law. It's not about a religion. So you've totally missed the boat if you've entered into Christianity and you think that's what it's about. If you want a religion, go to one of the other ones. Go to, go to Buddhism or, or Islam or, or any religion. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with somebody. It's a, it's a relationship with Jesus like we, like we just sang about. So uh, some of you entered into Christianity and you thought it's going to be way easier than, than it was. And when the hard times have come, you've, you've vacillated. You've, you've, uh, you've, you're like, I, th I thought this was just going to be easy. I thought this was going to be a different way of life. You know, the, your purpose and your design was off. And some of us in following Jesus are just right there. And that's because we've never actually read the instructions. We've never actually read this book. We've never actually paid attention to the words. We've never actually allowed the Spirit to transform us. We've never actually committed to following Jesus. Maybe you committed to following something else. And this morning, I want to give you the purpose of what this whole thing is about. If you're new with us this morning, if this is your first time in church in a long time or ever, or you're just trying to figure things out, I want you to hear this this morning. If you've been in church all your life, I want you to hear this this morning. So wherever you are on that spectrum, this is these next few things really pay attention to. Uh, but first, I'm going to give you some presuppositions because we're working off of some presuppositions. I'm working off of those right now, so I'm going to lay those out for you right now. Just, just, a, just something about presuppositions. You all have them. When you approach this book right here, you all have presuppositions you're approaching this with from cultural background, from family background, from our city background, from what's happened to you before. You all have presuppositions. The key to interpretation is to recognize your presuppositions. So then you recognize what your lens is that you're viewing this text. So anyways, I want to give you some presuppositions we have as believers, as a church. Here's number one. One, you can have a relationship with God. Curtis, I remember what I was going to talk to you about earlier. I changed one of them. I don't know if I remember it in my mind, though. So we'll just go with what's on the screen. So you can have a relationship with God. Uh, oh, go back to number one. And that's, that's the first thing, that it is possible for you this morning to be in a relationship with the God of the universe. That's presupposition number one. Number two is God does speak. God speaks to us. God speaks to you. And you can hear him. I think that was, that was number three. So go to number three. Um, yeah, yeah. God speaks to each of us individually. I switched that to you can hear God. So God speaks. And actually, you can actually hear God. God speaks to you individually. Okay? And then number four is... God speaks to us individually, not just for our own benefit, but for the purpose of building up the church, building up the body of Christ, building up uh, his bride, the, building up the, the mission agency in this world. And so and at Trinity Life, we define discipleship in, in this way. Here we, we talk about hear, trust, obey, and that's the purpose of all of this. 
So Christianity, your life with Jesus, you following Jesus, is designed for you to hear God's voice, trust his voice, and obey his voice. It's not about biblical knowledge. It's not about how much uh, you know about the Christian faith. It's not about anything like that. It's not about completing a catechism or a course or, or getting a degree, nothing like that. It's are you hearing God's voice? Are you trusting his voice? Are you obeying his voice? It's relationship. And this is straight out of John chapter 10 where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, my sheep know or trust my voice, and my sheep follow me. They obey me. So at Trinity Life, we would define discipleship, those three words, but also that it's just learning to recognize the voice of God. And as you grow in your faith, you learn to discern, is that God speaking or is that my own thoughts? Is that God speaking or is that just somebody speaking something random into my life? Is that God speaking or is that, you know, something else? So you begin to discern that as you grow and mature in your faith. And that leads us to the bottom line for today. So this is the one statement that the sermon is about. I always give it before the sermon um, so that you can trace it through, throughout. It's if you have the purpose to hear from God, you have the potential to speak for God. Now, for some of you guys, I don't know what, what your background is. You're like, ah, speak for God. That sounds, that sounds, um, that sounds crazy. I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if we should be doing that. But... That's what prophecy is all about. And when Daniel read that passage, this is, we're going to talk about prophecy today. And that's what prophecy is about. You have the potential to speak for God if your purpose is relationship, hearing from God, okay? Um, and this is, I mean, why would you be sitting there if you didn't think that God was going to speak to you through me today, right? Why are you listening right now if you don't think that's going to happen? So, we all have this potential to speak for God through the Spirit of God, and we're going to walk through what that looks like today. So, going into the passage, 1 Corinthians 14, this is, remember the context of what's going on here is uh, unity in the body, spiritual gifts. Paul just talked about love and how love is the primary ethic that informs how we use our gifts. If we don't use our gifts in love, he says, you're worthless. He doesn't say your gifts are worthless. He says, you are nothing. You need to use your gifts in love. That's the primary ethic we use them, we use them in. So he begins verse 1 here with saying, pursue love. Run after it. Chase after it. This, this actually, the imagery of this word uh, is a hunter that chases after prey. It's this, it's this um, never-stopping pursuit where we're trying to get to love. He says, pursue love. That's what you should be running after. And earnestly desire or be eager for spiritual gifts. A lot of times we read that, and it's, and it's through an individual lens. And we're like, okay, I should be eager or earnestly desire spiritual gifts, and it's for my benefit. But don't read that through an individual lens. Read it through. God is giving you spiritual gifts based on the context for the betterment of the body. He says the common good earlier in this book. He says we're supposed to be building up the church. So any gift that you have in the spirit, and if you're, like, if you're new with us today and you're wondering, well, what do you mean by spiritual gifts? We preached on that a few weeks ago. But it's just a, it's an endowment that the spirit of God gives you when you follow Jesus. And everybody has, everybody has them. 
And just be clear, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, there's a variety of gifts. So everybody has a different set of gifts. I mean, some people will have, have similar giftings, but he says, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service. So there's varieties of ways the gifts work out. But the same Lord, there are varieties of activities. The same God uh, who empowers in, in everyone. So think about it this way. If you have the gift of teaching, okay? So if, yeah, let's say you have the gift of teaching. You might be gifted to teach kids rather than adults. And even in that, in the kids' context, you might be gifted to... You might be gifted to write curriculum and teach through writing rather than speaking in public in front of kids. Does that make sense? So one gift actually works its way out in a, in a different way than somebody else's, okay? Um, that makes sense, right? Okay, so here he says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. We should desire them. We should want to have spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Why does why, why does he say that? Why does he say, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, but then he singles one out. He says, especially that you may prophesy. I'm not going to answer that right now. Just keep that in your mind. Why would he say that? Um, and that also begs the question, can we ask for it? If we're supposed to earnestly desire it, and especially that we may prophesy, can you ask for that gift? Can you say, God, give me the gift of prophecy? The answer to that one I'll give you is yes. Um, but then, why does he single that one out? We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it as we walk through this. Verse 2, uh, he says, and he gives us he gives an, ex- an example. Verses 2 through 4, basically, he's, he's showing us uh, one thing. So verse 4, he says, the one who speaks in, t- in a tongue builds himself up. And this is part of the answer. Because the one who speaks in a tongue, he says, builds himself up. And, and in the church in Corinth, they were abusing this gift. They were just using it to show people that they were more spiritual than, than somebody else, which wasn't true. Uh, but it seemed more spiritual to them. They would speak in tongues. So they're like, hey, I, I can do this. And they're pointing to themselves. And he says, but the one who prophesies, they actually build up the church. And going back to verse 3, he says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for three things. Upbuilding, you think about constructing a building. So think about construction and, and building a building. So that's what prophecy does. It builds somebody up. And encouragement, that word is just you're putting courage into somebody. So he says prophecy does that as well. It puts courage into somebody. And then consolation, it brings comfort. It brings peace. It, it consoles. Prophecy does those three things. Don't we all need more of those things? Wouldn't you love for someone who has the gift of prophecy to just live with you and build you up all the time and console you all the time and put courage in you all the time? That's the gift of prophecy. And that's maybe part of the answer why he says you guys should desire this because this is, this is needed for, for us in the church. So going on to verse 5, he says, Now I'd love for all you to speak in tongues. He says, I I want you all to do that, but even more to prophesy. Again, why? Why would he say even more to prophesy? He kind of answers it here a little bit. He says, the one who prophesies is greater 
than the one who speaks in tongues. And what he's pointing there to is, is the goal, the purpose, the design of prophecy is a, greater, is a greater goal than how they're using tongues right now. And that's to, like he said, those three things, building up, encouragement, consolation. And he says, unless someone interprets the tongue, because then the, the goal, the design purpose has changed, because they build up the church. And what's happening in here is there's all this unintelligible speech happening with tongues. And Paul's like, what good is that doing anybody? And then there's, there's prophecy, which is intelligible, encouragement, consolation, upbuilding, instruction. And he's like, you guys should desire that. You think this is more spiritual, but actually this is because people can understand it and it builds others up. And the rest of the chapter here, he's building on that argument. The rest of the chapter, each of the three successive paragraphs, he's, he's, he's showing us how prophecy actually builds up the church. So let's walk through it really quickly, verses 6 through 12. Uh, he starts out with a question. He says, if brothers, in verse 6, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how am I going to benefit you unless I bring some revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching? So see the... See the um, the, the design and the purpose. He's, he's trying to show them what, what that should be. Then he gives an example of instruments, and, and he finishes in verse 12 by reminding them of this ethic of love. He says, So with yourself, since you're eager for this, which is good, for manifestations of the Spirit, for these spiritual gifts, strive to excel in building up the church. And that's the love ethic. You're only going to strive to build up the church if if your love is patient, kind, not boasting, not envious, all those things that he says in 1 Corinthians 13 here. Uh, and then verses 13 through 19, he, he, also, he also talks about, let's just let's go all the way down to 19. He says, Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And the verses previous to that, he's, he's saying, the person who's speaking unintelligibly in tongues, they're just doing that with their spirit. So he's not saying they're, it's not a spiritual gift or anything like that. He's like, they're doing it in their spirit, but it's not fruitful for their mind or anybody's mind for that matter. And he's not saying that's not okay in a private setting. He's like, sure, sometimes you need that and it's going to build you up. Tongues is given for that, um, it's particularly in a, in a private setting. But if it's going to happen in public... We need to understand what that guy's saying. We need to know what that is. We need an interpretation. If we don't, then it's unfruitful for us. It's not actually building us up. So that's why he says, I'd rather speak five words with my mind, prophecy, in order to instruct others, than 10,000 words in a tongue. Okay? Everybody following me here? So verse, the, the, last, the last section here, verses 20 through 24, he starts off with saying, Do not be children in your thinking. So he's saying, remember this unintelligible, intelligible thing. He's like, you guys are just acting like a bunch of kids, and you're immature. And he says, you're supposed to be infants and evil, but in your thinking, you're supposed to be mature. And then he gives this awesome example of, a, of how, it's a, how prophecy is assigned for believers, and when um, an unbeliever comes in and sees everyone prophesying, a few things happen in verse 24. He says, if all prophesy, and an unbeliever, well, but he, he contrasts this with tongues. He says, if, if all speak in tongues and an unbeliever comes in, they're going to be like, you guys are out of your minds. 
But if all are prophesying, all are instructing, all are giving intelligible words of upbuilding, consolation, and encouragement, the unbeliever is going to be convicted by all. And when we hear conviction, we're like, ugh, but no, this is a good thing. This is the Spirit's work. It's not us saying, Adam, you're a sinner, blah, 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 these are your sins. And it's, it's them saying, wow, this is the presence of God, this is the body of Christ, and the Spirit does the work of convicting, not us. We don't do the work of convicting. As the church in the city, we've done too good a job at convicting people outside of the church. But it's actually been a bad job. Because <laughs> that's not what we're supposed to do. We just share truth, we share love, and the Spirit does the convicting. And it shows us that here. He's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. He's entered into accountability in the community. And the secrets of his heart are disclosed. What's in darkness, what's in hiddenness, is revealed in the light. And again, we're like, oh, that's, that's scary. I don't, I don't want that. Again, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Paul says what is made visible is actually made light. It's no longer darkness in your, light, in your life. <clears throat> and the psalmist says that God's in the business of turning your darkness into light. How beautiful is that? God doesn't want you in darkness. Jesus came to release you and free you from the darkness. And he says here, after that, he'll fall on his face, worship God, and declare that God is really among you. That's the presence of the Lord. Right? So often we try to conjure the presence of the Lord or, or we try to force it. We just need to be the body of Christ and let, let the Spirit of the Lord work. So I want to give you five prophetic principles because this is all about prophecy. And I want to give you five principles of prophecy to inform us of what this looks like. Because what does this look like? If we're going to desire prophecy, if we're going to pray for it, if we're going to ask for it, if we're going to pursue love in this, in this as well, what should it look like in our church? What should it look like uh, in our city? What, how, should we, how should we be living forward in this? So here's number one. Prophecy is spontaneous revelation from the Lord. Okay? Prophecy is not teaching. Prophecy is not tongues. Prophecy is not preaching. Prophecy is spontaneous revelation from the Lord. Now, here's an example. For, for me, um, I, in a sermon, for instance, I prep, I pray, I, I plan what I'm going to say, I, I plan it all out. Um, that's like my teaching gift. Okay, that's going to come out in my, my gift of teaching. But when I'm up here, like right before I got up here, I said, Spirit, this is all you. This is all your time. You prophesy this morning, you teach this morning, you do your work this morning. And so probably, if you were to look at my notes, which are pretty crazy, and compare it to the sermon, you would see around a third of things that, are, that I actually say weren't even in my notes. That's where the prophetic gift comes out. Okay? Now, I don't have to tell you, we'll get to this, I won't say this right now. So, actually, I will say it right now. I don't have to tell you it's a prophetic word from God. Okay? What do, you, what do you think that does? Who does that draw attention to? Me. My, the object of prophecy is to point to Jesus. So I don't have to tell you, oh guys, I just got a spontaneous prophetic word from the Lord, so listen up. I'm just going to say it, and the Spirit's going to do His work in your life. But it's spontaneous. It, it just happens in the moment. Um, and there's, there's pretty ordinary 
uh, accounts of it, which would be like in the preaching moment, like you guys just don't know. And there's pretty extraordinary accounts of it, like in our body life group on Tuesday night that that happened. And where someone says something to somebody and they had no previous knowledge of it, and boom, this person's in tears and we're celebrating Jesus and we're praying and, and everything's awesome. Uh, the other thing is about this, two things, this does not mean that it has to be brand new. I'm not saying you're getting a brand new revelation from God all the time. It doesn't mean that. Uh, because it, a, a lot of times prophecy is coupled with scripture. And when it is, it's very powerful. Okay? And this isn't, oh man, I lost my place. This isn't, uh, this isn't brand new. Um, like we, we know this book, we have this book. So a lot of times uh, it's not brand new. Um, it's just coupled with scripture, which makes it, like I said, even more powerful. And then, did I have a scripture verse with this? Okay, Second Peter says this about, about prophecy. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That's huge. We're going to talk about that a little later. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but man spoke from God as they were carried along by who? The Holy Spirit, not themselves. Okay, let's go to number two. Second prophetic principle. Prophecy is for upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. You're like, yeah, we know that. You, you said that like 50 times <laughs> already. Now I just put that in there just so, just to be clear, that prophecy is not for bad, it's for good. It's for these things. It's, it's for, at the, end of the, at the end of the day, those three things should happen in prophecy. Some of you guys may have, had an experience with a prophetic word or prophecy in the past and it hurt you and it wasn't beneficial and it wasn't upbuilding well then it probably wasn't true okay because paul says prophecy is supposed to be these things now sometimes you might receive a prophetic word and you don't want to hear it that's a different story and that's where paul says in first thessalonians he says do not quench the spirit so if we think about the spirit like a fire, don't pour water on the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Because sometimes we don't like to hear truth, right? Sometimes we're like, ah, that's, uh, that's too much for me. I don't want that. I don't want to hear that. But he says, don't despise prophecies, but test it. Test everything and hold fast to what is good. Okay? All right, let's, is it uh, number three next? All right, prophecy is found in the message, not the medium. Okay, this is, this is key. Prophecy is found in the message, not the medium. What I mean by this is prophecy. So there's different ways the prophetic gift is worked out. You may receive a feeling, physical, emotional. You may receive an image. You may receive a vision, which is like be an animated image. Uh, you may receive a dream, you may re receive a vision, you may receive something from the Word of God. Uh, the prophetic works its way out in all these ways for upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Uh, but sometimes you get something and it's just weird. And what you need to do in prophecy is ask God for an interpretation. And odds are he's going to give it to you. There's very, very rare instances where he's not going to give you the interpretation because that's what matters, okay? 
And that's what I mean by the message of the medium. The interpretation is the message. That matters. The medium is not what matters. Here's an example. <clears throat> Daniel Yang, who uh, helps, uh, so the Yang family helped our family plant this church. And uh, whenever Daniel would, would teach on, whenever Daniel would teach on prophecy, he always uses this example. He, would, he always uses this example of, of someone who got it wrong. And, and so, and he was even doing this up until just a month or two ago. <laughs> and so he was teaching before they moved to Toronto. I don't know how long before, but before they moved to Toronto, so years, years ago, at least, at least five, six years ago, he was teaching on prophecy to a group of people. And, and uh, this girl comes up to him afterwards, and she says, hey, to Daniel, I, I got an image of a red couch for you that God wants me to give you. This is a prophetic word. I want to give this to you. Um, I got this image of a red couch. And Daniel's like, okay. But it meant nothing to him. So he just discarded it. He was like, yep. I mean, that's cool. She, she tried, but she got it wrong. And he went on with his life. And they moved to Toronto. We met here in the city uh, started, started working together to plant the church, um, all this stuff, uh, went through years of ministry together, and then they moved out of Toronto of June or May, whatever it was, June this year. And so Missy and I, a couple months ago, we're FaceTiming them in our living room and just catching up, uh, just, just talking, catching up, and had a really good time. And then the next morning, Daniel's brushing his teeth, and that red couch imagery pops in his mind. And God reminds him of this, of this prophetic word that he received years ago of the red couch. And it hit him that that prophecy had been fulfilled in Toronto. Because when we were FaceTiming, Missy and I, if you've been to our house, we were sitting in our living room on our red couch. And he didn't realize that his whole time in Toronto, that prophecy was being fulfilled. That prophetic word was being fulfilled, okay? And uh, I didn't say this before, but when you think about prophecy, don't always think about, well, I'll, get, I'll hit that in a second. And we had spent hours upon countless hours praying and weeping and just in the presence of the Lord on those couches, just living together on those couches. And the whole time, he had totally missed it. Why? Because he got confused with the message and the medium. Now, if the girl had asked uh, God, what is the interpretation of the red couch? She could have said to Daniel, well, a very significant relationship is going to come into your life. He's going to be the coolest guy you've ever met. He'll be the most intelligent, best-looking guy. And when he saw me, he'd be like, that's him. <laughs> Prophecy fulfilled. Uh, but... She didn't ask for the interpretation. She just got the image, and she gave it to Daniel, and he's like, that has nothing to do with me. See you later. Now, the awesome thing is, God still used it, even though we missed, even we, he, even though he missed it, <laughs> even though, I'm not losing myself, yeah, even though he missed it <laughs> that whole time, God still used it to tremendously encourage us even after they left. So, um, God's prophetic words still built us, encouraged us, and brought comfort to us. And that's what I mean by getting the message confused with the medium. 
And here's the thing, guys. Oftentimes, when we say the, uh, when we say the, like, say you get an, an image, and I've been guilty of this. Say you get an image. <laughs> no, I'm not going to bring that up. So you get an image, and it just distracts from what God wants to actually share with the person, okay? Um, and sometimes the image means something to you, but has no relevance for the person. That's why the asking for the interpretation is key. Now, if you don't get the interpretation, I would still say deliver what you got um, and, and see what God does. Number, or is there, is there, no, number four. Prophecy requires a risk of faith. Um, one more thing on, one more thing on this. When you give a prophetic word, and this is going back to number three, it's never wise to say, God told me to tell you this. It's never wise to say, thus saith the Lord. And I'll talk about that a little bit later too. Um, because remember, you have the potential to speak for God, but you, don't, you might not be speaking for God. Does that make sense? You have the potential, but you might not be. And so it's never good to say to somebody, God said this to you. Unless you're reading it from this book, I would never say that to somebody, okay? All right, prophecy requires the risk of faith, though. It requires you to step forward in faith. Romans 12 says this. It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith. You have to take a step of faith into it. It requires it because it's awkward. You're trusting the Spirit. It can be just uneasy. So you need faith to do it. Number five, <clears throat> and here's where we'll talk about this a little bit more, that prophecy allows for the potential to speak for God. Now, it requires you to hear from God, trust God, and obey God. But this is where I say it's never wise for us to, to say God said this to somebody. Don't be the spirit of God for them. You're just the messenger, Okay? You're just the messenger. So you're delivering a message. Somebody, when you give it to somebody else, a believer um, in particular, when you give it to a believer, they have the Spirit of God in them. They can take that, the Spirit of God can work that and say, that's not of me or that is of me, and they can take it uh, to the Spirit of God. They can take it to the church in the body of Christ and say, you know, this is, a, this is what someone, something someone told me. Do you guys think this is accurate? And this is where these two passages come in. The first one is, was it, 1 Corinthians 14, later on, in a, or next week we'll talk about this. It says, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. This is in the context of the church. 1 John is another one. It says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So these, these principles are huge for us as we figure out and discern how to move forward in uh, this gift of prophecy in the body of Christ. If we're going to earnestly desire spiritual gifts, if we're going to pursue love, those five things need to be informing how we use the gift of prophecy. Now, why, is this, why does any of this matter? Why is this important for us? Why does this matter in the church? Why is this important for us to, to learn? I don't know what, if you've been around church for a, for a while, I don't know what faith tradition you've, you've come from, but a lot of churches don't teach 
about prophecy very much. A lot of churches don't, like the church my family started going to that I was in from 10, the church tradition I should say, 10 on, we never talked about this. Um, I learned more about prophecy in studying this passage to preach than I've learned in like 15 years or 20 years of my um, Christian life. So why is this important? Why should we desire to prophesy? Why should we ask for it? Why does Paul say we should desire this even more? Why is this something for us? Well, this is, this is the answer because it's all over the scriptures. It starts in Genesis 3.15 with God prophesying. And the fall happens and God says, Jesus is going to come. Genesis 3.15. You see, you see prophecy working itself out through Genesis and, and some other accounts. Um, uh, Joseph dreams dreams. Uh, Jacob, his father, dreams dreams. Uh, at the end of Genesis, it ends with Jacob giving blessing and prophecy over all of his sons. You have Miriam prophesying, Moses prophesying in, in the first five books of the Bible. And then you get to a passage like Numbers here. And, <clears throat> and it has, and this is about prophecy. It says, these two men remained in the camp. The Spirit rested on them, and they prophesied. And verse 27, they ran to Moses, and they were like, hey, Moses, uh, these guys are, are prophesying. And Moses in verse 29 says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the, Lord's, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And in the Old Testament, the spirit of the Lord came on people, and then it, ba and then it backed off. It would come on certain people and then, and then back off. And here Moses is saying, I wish that were the case for all of God's people, that they're all prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Let's go to the next, the next verse, <clears throat> the next set of verses. 1 Samuel uh, 10 this is King Saul, or before he's king, this is Saul, and he goes to meet a group of prophets, and in verse 6, this is the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and be turned into another man. When the Spirit of the Lord will come on you, and you're going to prophesy, you're going to be someone totally different, and you're going to be transformed. You're not going to be like that old person anymore. You're not going to be stuck in those old ways. You're going to be somebody new, a new creation in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. And he says, now when these signs meet you and do what your hands find to do, for God is with you. When he turned to back leave Saul, uh, Samuel, God gave him another heart. God gave him a new heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. And this leads us to the next passage in, in Ezekiel 36. This is the prophet Ezekiel prophesying, and he says, through God, God speaking, says this through him, I will give you a new heart. Saying this to, to God's people, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you, and I'll cause you to walk in my instruction. And then Ezekiel 37 says this, the hand of the Lord was upon me. This is Ezekiel talking. And he brought me in the spirit of the Lord and sent me down the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and they were dry. And God says to him, Son of man, can these bones live? And verse 4, 
<clears throat> he says, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you. You shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, cause flesh to come on you. Skin, put breath in you, shall live. And you shall know, this is relationship, you shall know that I am the Lord. And then in verse 7, he goes on and he says, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there's a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, flesh was on them, skin was on them, sinews. But there was no breath in them. And then God said, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded. He's hearing God, he's trusting God, and he's speaking to bones. And he says, prophesy as I command, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Go to the next passage. <clears throat> yeah, go to the next, the, the math, or Joel, yeah. And Joel says this. Joel is this book that, <clears throat> that uh, we, can't, we don't really know when it was written. It's actually pretty impossible to, to date. Uh, but it's this book that starts off with a, bun a bunch of destruction and, and uh, sin and despair. And Joel says this, that the locusts have come, the cutting locusts, has, uh, what the cutting locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust ate. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So it's like one wave of destruction came through, and then you're like, oh, man, this is all we have left. Then another wave, and eats up that, and another wave, another wave, and it eats up all of it. So all this destruction. But Joel calls the people of God, because they're in sin, because they're, they're uh, following after other gods, he calls them to repentance, and he calls the church to rise up. Now the church isn't the church yet, right? But he calls God's people to rise up. He says a solemn assembly, the church, gather the elders, the church, and to the house of the Lord your God. And this is the church, right? He says he calls the church up. And then in chapter two, there's this uh, just visual picture of the weight of our sin. And, and then he says, church, you need to rise up. And the Lord actually uh, Accept, they repent, and the Lord accepts their repentance, and he restores. And he says, what the locusts have eaten, I will restore. I'll restore all those years to you that the locusts took. And he restores them in a relationship. And then Joel says this, And then it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He's, this is God speaking here, Joel speaking on God's behalf. And I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Such a powerful prophecy. And then we get to Matthew. And this is Jesus. Jesus is arrested. He's been condemned to death. And they're spitting in his face. They've blindfolded him. They've covered his face. It'll, it'll say in, in Mark. They're blaspheming him. They're mocking him, it says in the other Gospels. They're slapping him around. They're punching him in his face. And they say to him, if you're of God, if you are who you say you are, prophesy to us. You Christ, 
new Messiah. If you're the anointed one, prove it to us. Show us that the Spirit of the Lord is upon you. Prophesy. Who is it that struck you? And they're just punching him, and they're saying, prophesy. And they're spitting on him, and they're saying, prophesy. And they're slapping him around, and they're mocking him, and they're blaspheming him, and they're saying, prophesy. And in that moment, the author of prophecy says nothing. In that moment, the originator and creator of prophecy actually fulfills a prophecy and doesn't open his mouth. He fulfills Isaiah 52, a prophecy that was given of the Christ 800 years before. In this moment, he fulfills by remaining silent and not prophesying. And he fulfills it. Why? Why did Jesus do that for you? Why did Jesus need to fulfill that for you? Well, that's because in Acts, this happens. Peter prophesying says, hey, remember that guy Joel? That's actually happening right now. He says, the Spirit is being poured onto us. The church is being established right now in our midst that is happening. We are gathered as God's people. We are his sons. We are his daughters. And we shall prophesy. This is us. We are prophesying now. And, and Peter leads the church in this. And you know what happens? 1 Corinthians 14 happens. Thousands come to Christ that day. Thousands. And prophecy is redefined in the New Testament. And Paul goes into it. He goes in that Romans passage we talked about. 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, uh, 2 Peter, 1 John, and he teaches us what this is supposed to look like. He shows us how this is supposed to work. He gives us all these principles. And then Revelation. John writing says this, And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, You must not do that. I'm just a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And that's why prophecy is so important in the church. It doesn't just upbuild. It doesn't just encourage. It doesn't just console. It shows our world that the spirit of the Lord is upon us. And thank God that Jesus remains silent so we don't have to. Thank God that he went through all of that so that we don't have to go through all of that. Thank God that he is interceding for us and we don't have to go through any intermediary. He is our mediator. He's interceding on our behalf so that we can hear directly from the Father and prophesy on his behalf. And like Revelation said, give testimony and honor and praise and glory to Jesus. That's the point of the gift of prophecy. It's not for Europe building. It's to build the church so that we point to Jesus. And if you're, a, if you're not a follower of Jesus in here this morning, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, prophecy should show you that the Spirit of the Lord is with us. 
prophecy should show you that the church is this unique assembly where the people of God gather and where you can be safe and the, the secrets of your heart can be revealed. The hiddenness in your heart can be disclosed. The darkness in your heart can come out where there's no shame, where there's just light, where God turns your darkness into glorious light. That's the beauty of prophecy. And if you're a believer in here this morning, desire prophecy even more, as Paul says. But first, pursue love. Run after love. And actually more so, desire to upbuild, console, and encourage others. And maybe God will gift us with the gift of prophecy. Because we're supposed to have it. If you're a son or daughter this morning of our Lord Jesus Christ, you should be able to prophesy. You have the capability. Joel says the Spirit was poured on all of us. All of us have that capability. We should be living in that. We should be hearing God's voice. You should be trusting His voice and obeying His voice. If we're His sheep, we know His voice and we love to hear it. Stop despising prophecy. Stop quenching the Spirit and ask Him for it. Earnestly desire it as the Apostle Paul says, and He'll give it to you. And then we can finally be the church we're supposed to be in this city if we're actually living forward in that gift and building each other up, consoling and comforting each other and putting courage into each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can say that it is true and we stand on it and we stand on its authority. And because of that, I say, give us prophecy. I say we desire that. And I can say that collectively, we want that witness as a church in our city. We want unbelievers to come into our presence and fall on their face and worship you, not because of anything we did, but because of your spirit and what your spirit is doing in us and in our midst. And we want our church to be built up. We want our church to have courage. We want our church to, to, to feel comfort and consolation in the spirit. And so give us those things this morning, we ask in your name, Jesus. Amen.